Oh, it's nice that people are quieting down. One thing that um, happened in Elizabethan theater is something, Shakespeare almost never used it, but um, he does kind of the reverse of it at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream, but it's something called the induction scene. And the way an induction scene would often work is that people wouldn't be quieting down in the theater, and of course there were no lights and no curtains and no amplified sound. It was just kind of like this, except outdoors. Um, and uh, suddenly an argument would break out between two members of the audience, um, and they might even uh, get into a fight, and of course everyone was fascinated. And it would turn out that that was the start of the play. Um, and what they would be arguing about is whether they wanted to be at this play or not, and someone would say, look, let the actors come on stage, um, and then they might or they might not, and then the play itself would begin. So Shakespeare actually didn't do, the only induction scene he does is in Taming of the Shrew. But induction scenes are interesting, and they get things going, and um, lectures started when things start out very noisily. So I thought I'd just mention that. Okay, we are by hook or by crook, um, or maybe by both, going to finish Richard II and start Midsummer Night's Dream today. You have a quiz on Midsummer Night's Dream on, Tuesday, on uh, Friday. So you should have it finished by then, and this quiz is a real one. That is, you will actually hand in your quizzes after you take them on Friday. And then over the weekend, it's Merchant of Venice. We only have one lecture on Merchant of Venice, which is next Tuesday. So there will be a quiz then. So two quizzes in the next week. Uh, you have some sense of the qu what the quizzes are like from the Richard II quiz. Then a week from Friday is the first section. So on Tuesday, we'll give out the section rosters, and then Friday, February 12th, will be your first section meeting. So no lecture that day, but section. So quiz Friday, quiz Tuesday, section next Friday. Okay, we were um, looking at Richard's way to despair, as he puts it in Act 3, Scene 2. Um, he gets um, some dressing down from his followers who say that he's got to try to meet contingencies. Again, um, it's almost as though his followers are saying, uh, Democrats don't quit, uh, give a State of the Union address or something. And it almost works, but not quite for Richard. Then we get to Act 3, Scene 3, and um, we're now with Bolingbroke's party. And so I want to take this shift from Richard and his followers in Act 3, Scene 2 to Bolingbroke and his followers in Act 3, Scene 3 <coughs> to make a general comment about Shakespearean theater. Basically, the rule, there are no curtains in, on Shakespeare's stage. And um, there is therefore only one way to show that a scene has shifted. Whenever you're reading a Shakespeare play, or if you watch it in a movie, or if you watch it in modern day theater um, with lights and with other technology, you know where a scene ends and a new scene begins. If you watch a Shakespeare play in the Globe Theater, actually even if you do it now, if you watch a Shakespeare play in the Globe Theater, the only way that you know that a scene has ended, and it matters that a scene ends because you may be in some other place when the next scene begins. The first scene may be in Athens or Rome, and the second scene may be in Alexandria. You know that a scene has ended 
because the stage is emptied for a moment. And then the people who come on stage are different from the people who have just left. That is, you could have a continuous scene where, for example, Bottom leaves the stage because he's looking for something, then he returns and the scene continues. The fact that the stage is empty doesn't tell you that the scene is over. What tells you that a scene is over is that a group of people from rarely a single person, but occasionally at the end of a soliloquy, but one or more people who are on stage exeunt, that is, which um, if you didn't know, that's the plural for exit, um, one or more people leave the stage, and then another group of people enters the stage. And that fact about scenic form in Shakespeare um, is also a fact about the structure that drama has to have, which is it always has to be about at least two groups of people. It's not only a kind of standard definition of drama, is that it has to have at least two characters who are arguing or talking with each other or trying to get things from each other, but in Shakespearean drama, it's not, two people are not enough for a Shakespeare drama, um, unlike, say, a Beckett drama. Two people are not enough for a Shakespeare drama. What you need are at least two groups. And in those groups, you have to have tension between those groups, but you also have, have to have tension within those groups. So Shakespearean drama, by its very structure, is a drama with multiple ramifications of um, disagreement and of alliance. That's the very structure that the stage without technology imposes on anyone who's trying to do a play not in real time. The plays, Greek plays were done in real time and no scenes shifted. If you went to see a play by Aeschylus or by Euripides, what you saw was continuous action at a single place. Um, people might leave the stage, but time didn't change and place didn't change when that happens. In Shakespeare, in plays which are not real-time plays, you have to have multiple splits within any number of people on stage who all have different perspectives and different desires, but also splits between those groups, one group on stage, and then they exit and another group enters. And you will see this again and again. Occasionally, as you'll see at the beginning of King Lear, editors realize that a character has to have left the stage and they will put in, in brackets. In the first scene of King Lear, you will see um, a line in brackets, exit Edmund, even though Shakespeare never wrote exit Edmund. But the reason we know that Edmund leaves is that he comes in at the beginning of the next scene. And it so clearly is another scene that he can't have stuck, stuck around. Um, so here we have an example of that. At the end of Act Scene 3 and 2, all of Richard's um, company departs the stage after having um, tension about whether to despair or not. A lot happens between them, but then they leave. And then the new and rising group, the new and rising cr um, crew, comes in in Act 3, Scene 3, Bolingbroke, York, Northumberland, and others. 
And Bolingbroke knows they're in the middle of a conversation. He knows that Richard isn't far away. Um, and um, then we get uh, this hilarious little interplay uh, um, where Northumberland says, the news is very fair and good, my lord. Richard, not far from hence, hath hit his head. Um, and then York, still trying to balance his loyalties, says it would beseem the lord Northumberland to say, King Richard. Alack, the heavy day when such a sacred king should hide his head. Northumberland, your grace mistakes, only to be brief, left I his title out. So Northumberland manages to save a syllable by calling him Richard and not King Richard. Um, and th it, that comes at quite a little cost, which is um, about 60 or 70 syllables of discussion about the single syllable that's saved. The time hath been, York says, would you have been so brief with him, he would have been so brief with you to shorten you for taking so the head, your whole head's length. Um, that should remind you in advance of Polonius. This is, and um, you can see how if um, Henry is in some ways a warm-up, if Bolingbroke is in some ways a warm-up for Hamlet, um, York is in some ways as the older generation who is, uh, gets fussy about unimportant things um, is a warm-up for Polonius. Bolingbroke, the peacemaker, um, that is the authoritarian and authoritative peacemaker, um, tries to calm things down, mistake not uncle further than you should, and Bolingbroke then um, is replied to by York um, pointedly, take not good cousin, not good nephew, but good cousin further than you should, lest you mistake the heavens are over our heads. Um, and then Bolingbroke agrees. I know it, uncle, and oppose not myself <coughs> against their will. Um, now notice again that he's saying something which is a little bit tricky. Um, York takes him to be saying, I do not oppose myself to the will of heaven. I don't um, take arms against their will. Um, I am not opposed to them. But he also means it is their will that I should oppose myself against Richard. That is, what I'm doing is opposition. I'm in opposition to the king. But he makes it sound as though all he's saying is, I would never go against heaven. Whereas what he's actually saying is, I am, I am going against heaven's deputy anointed, but not against the will of heaven. Here he sounds a little bit like his father. Then we find with the entry of Percy, he's going to be the hotspur of Henry IV, part one, that the castle is royally manned. Bolingbroke, one of the few moments of surprise in the play, royally, why it contains no king. And then the important response by Percy, yes, my good Lord, it doth contain a king. So not the king, but a king. Which king? King Richard lies within the limits of yon, lime, and stone. And so Bolingbroke now knows that Richard is cornered and trapped. And this very idea that we've already been looking at of space contracting around the falling king, that's what Percy is saying also. He lies within the limits of yawn, lime, and stone. 
Um, I'm not going to do this much, but I will do this right now, um, is ask you to notice something about Shakespeare's um, poetry here, which is the way limits, expands, those sounds, limits, expand to lime and stone. Um, that echo is intentional, not in the sense of Shakespeare saying, oh man, what a cool echo I'm going to do here. This will really blow them away even 400 years from now. Um, no, but it's something that he heard and it had an effect. The effect was intuitive. Um, English majors always think that English professors are claiming that things that are clearly not intentional are intentional. Um, I think this is intentional, but not on the level of Shakespeare saying, this is what I'm going to do. Rather, he heard that that line worked. He had a sense of what worked. And if we try to say what works in the line, it's the way that shows us that Richard has some space, lime and stone, but that space is closing in on him. Those are the limits of his world, are lime and stone. And Bolingbroke then is surprised, um, but says to Northumberland, go talk to him, thus deliver at line 33, Henry Bolingbroke. So notice he uses his real name, what Richard will later call the name given to him at the font, that is his baptismal name. Not Harford, not Lancaster, but the bare particular name Henry Bolingbroke. I draw your attention to that um, as a way of drawing your attention to what um, I was talking about at the end of last class, which is the extent to which Richard's last friend in the world is going to be Bolingbroke. Bolingbroke is his last friend because Bolingbroke executes and defeats and turns all his other friends. But it really matters that there, can, that there remains and intensifies a kind of strange and unaffectionate friendship between Richard and Bolingbroke. They are the only two people who understand each other. And so what you get here is a play which as the public world shows Bolingbroke rising like the bucket in the well getting higher and higher and Richard falling like the bucket in the well getting lower and lower as we see the divergence in their fates, as we see one reduced to being murdered in a prison and the other becoming king of all of England. The public divergence between their fates um, occurs while something quite the opposite is occurring in private, which is Richard and Bolingbroke understanding each other more deeply and with more of a kind of sympathy for each other, um, not pity, and not um, a desire to help each other, but um, a sense that knowing each other matters. So the phrase that I once came up for with this um, and that I repeat now is intimacy without affection. But intimacy is what really matters there. Intimacy, not affection, but intimacy. What Richard says he needs is friends in the lines we were looking at on Friday. I 
Um, I want bread, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? To be a human being is to need friends. Kings don't have friends. But now Richard, no longer the king, at best a king, has become subjected, needs friends. And the friend, ultimately, that he will have is Bolingbroke. Yeah? Is this parallel to the idea that um, Bolingbroke's intimacy uh, without affection is political because how Richard is treated as direct to come to have direct ramifications for his new position? And the respect is really about self-love because well, I, I don't. I don't think that's quite true. That is, I think that there's certainly, the question is, is, the, is, is Bolingbroke's friendship um, to Richard political? The answer is yes, it is, but that's not all it is. And um, the way it isn't all it is, I think, is the way you can, you can look at one of his great last lines, Bolingbroke's great last lines, where he says, um, after Exton has murdered Richard, he says, Bolingbroke says, they love not poison that do poison need, nor do I thee. That is, he needed poison to get rid of Richard. Remember the line that Exton responds to, is Bolingbroke's asking, have I no friend will rid me of this living fear? So Exton raises his hand, I'm your friend, I'll rid you of this living fear. But Bolingbroke then says, well, I needed you, they, that do poison need, I did need you, but they love not poison that do poison need, nor do I thee. And then he picks up that word love, and what he says, Richard being dead, um, or Richard being murdered, um, I love him murdered, hate the murderer. And the official or quasi-official meaning of that, the political meaning of I love him murdered, hate the murderer, is I love the fact that he's murdered. Now he's gone and no longer someone I need to worry about. So I accept responsibility for the fact that I did need that poison, which was the death of Richard. But he's also saying, although it's probably the case that no one on stage is getting this, he's also saying, now that he's dead, I no longer have any reason to feel anything for him but the love and friendship and pity that I feel for him as a tragic figure who has lost everything. So now that he's dead, I love him. Murdered. I love him. I didn't when he was alive, or that couldn't be my ruling relationship to him, but now it is. Okay, let's go a little farther. Henry Bolingbroke, he tells Northumberland to say, Henry Bolingbroke, upon his knees doth kiss King Richard's hand and sends allegiance and true faith of heart to his most royal person, utterly accepting Richard's kingship, apparently. Hither come even at his feet to lay my arms and power. So I've come now to surrender to him, or at least to give him the power as king that he has over my arms and power, provided that my banishment repealed and lands restored again be freely granted. So that's the offer he can't refuse. If Richard freely grants what I now demand, then 
I will give him, I will lay my arms and power at his feet. If not, if he doesn't do this freely and happily and willingly, if not, I'll use the advantage of my power and lay the summer's dust with showers of blood rained from the wounds of slaughtered Englishmen. So the idea of laying dust, if you've ever seen a Western, you know that on very dusty days, the water wagon comes out and sprays um, the dirt streets so that the dust settles down. Um, they do this in Deadwood a lot. Um, Bolingbroke is saying, I'm going to do that with blood. Um, and um, rain from the wounds of slaughtered Englishmen. If he doesn't freely grant what I'm asking for, then everyone is going to die. Um, but I'm not thinking about this at all. The witch, how far off from the mind of Bolingbroke it is, such crimson tempest should be drenched the fresh green lap of fair King Richard's land, my stooping duty tenderly shall show. So I would never even think of such a thing as blood spraying the landscape. How would you imagine that I could think of that? So that's the um, warning to Richard. And now he says, we're going to kneel, go signify as much while here we march upon the grassy carpet of this plain. Let's march without the noise of threatening drum that from this castle's tottered battlements, our fair appointments may be well perused. So no threats, silent marching. Later, Richard is going to underscore Bolingbroke's silence, the way he does things in this minimalist, yielding way. But Bolingbroke himself is about to describe his own strategy. So let's be seen from the castle. Methinks King Richard, notice he never calls him Richard, methinks King Richard and myself should meet with no less terror than the elements of fire and water when their thundering shock at meeting tears the cloudy cheeks of heaven, be he the fire, I'll be the yielding water. The rage be his, whilst on the earth I rain my waters. So the pun there is that for a minute it sounds like he says, I'm going to be king, I'm going to reign. But he says, no, whilst I rain my waters. On the earth and not on him. March on and mark King Richard, how he looks. And notice there that same thing with yon limits of lime and stone is picked up in march on and mark King Richard, how he looks. A kind of expansion at the moment. It's, this is like the end of Sonnet 73. These last moments of um, space that you command in the world, these last moments of time that you can still think of yourself as a king. The language expands, but the very expansion of that language shows how little time and how little space is left. And then Richard appears, and it's Bolingbroke who cues us into him. This is a version of stay. The king had thrown his warder down at the end of the trial by combat. Now it's, see, see, King Richard doth himself appear, as doth the blushing, discontented sun from out the fiery portal of the east, when he perceives the envious clouds are bent to dim his glory and to stain the track of his bright passage to the Occident. Now notice that's the same language Richard 
used earlier when he says that when I appear as the son, this traitor, this thief, this Bolingbroke will go slinking into the hole that he should go to. Now Bolingbroke is saying, look, there he is like the sun coming from the east and rising on its bright passage to setting, to the Occident. Occident means the place where the sun falls. That's why it means the west. It's um, in Latin, the falling of the sun. And notice that what Bolingbroke says is he doth himself appear as doth the blushing discontented sun. He is pushing the simile version of the king, sun-like majesty. Richard isn't the sun. Richard uses the metaphors where he thinks he is, but he's not. He's like the sun. He's spectacular, but he can't keep it up. So what Bolingbroke says to his son in Henry IV, part one, which is that the king um, became as the cuckoo is in June because he just kept shining and shining and no one paid any attention to him. Um, now he's saying, yeah, he looks like the sun. I am going to yield and let him burn himself out. So the two theories of kingship that are staged here, the fire theory and the water theory, you could call them, are the theories of kingship that distinguish between Richard and the older generation and Bolingbroke and the younger generation. Richard believes that to be a king is to be a magical being, to be the sun, to be something special in nature, to be, to have God within you. Bolingbroke believes that to be a king is to convince people that you're a magical being and to convince people that you can burn forever even though you can't. So Bolingbroke, we saw this in Henry IV Part One, says that he managed his image really well so that he dazzled but then disappeared before people stopped being dazzled by him. Richard believes that as a magical being like the sun itself, he can dazzle no matter how long he's out there. Here we see Bolingbroke acknowledging the power of Richard's ability to dazzle. See, see, King Richard doth himself appear as doth the blushing discontented sun from out the fiery portals of the east. But Bolingbroke says that fire will burn itself out and I will be the water that yields and let itself, let it burn itself out. Richard has his last great speech of authority. York says he looks like a king, and Richard says we are amazed at line 71, and thus long have we stood to watch the fearful bending of thy knee. And here he speaks exactly like a king, and Richard and Northumberland parlay, um, and then Richard says, that he knows the truth by the time we get to line 126 to our Merle. We do debase ourselves, cousin, do we not? To look so poorly and to speak so fair. So he's going to go down now and talk to Bolingbroke, and he knows that although he still has the ability to speak like a king, it's just about to be over. 
Um, and then he knows what he's done wrong. Oh God, oh God, that ere this tongue of mine that <coughs> lay the sentence of dread banishment on yon proud man should take it off again with words of sooth. And yet that's what he's about to do. Oh, that I were as great as is my grief or lesser than my name or that I could forget what I have been or not remember what I must be now. Um, so North, so um, Northumberland comes back and Richard says, so what do I have to do now? Um, and at line 171, most mighty prince, my lord Northumberland, what says King Bolingbroke? Will his majesty give Richard leave to live till Richard die? You make a leg, that is, he bows. And Bolingbroke says, I. Northumberland doesn't want to be too public about this. I, my lord, in the base court, he doth attend to speak with you. May it please you to come down. And then Richard uses another sun, sun image. Down, down I come, like glistering Phaeton, wanting the manage of unruly Jades, so the footnote will tell you, kind of tell you, um, that Phaeton was Apollo's son, and he insisted on driving the chariots of the sun across the sky, but of course he didn't know what he was doing, and he crashed and died. And that's what Richard is doing now. He wants to drive the chariot of the sun, but he's going to come crashing down spectacularly. So the basic idea the question we asked is, how does Bolingbroke get Richard to give up? The basic idea is Richard's mode of rule is spectacular. He tries to be a spectacular public figure. Bolingbroke says, you want to be spectacular, that's fine. Be as spectacular as you want. And once Bolingbroke stops resisting Richard, what Richard does is he has his, his most spectacular moment of all, which is the crash to earth. Much brighter than if the sun were handled correctly. He crashes to earth, and that's it. So Bolingbroke then says, what says his majesty? And here Northumberland has this amazing description telling us what Shakespeare meant to be happening in the language of this play which is as things get worse, your language gets more intense. The language of poetry, as I revised Hazlitt to say, falls in with the language of the loss of power. So Northumberland here says, sorrow and grief of heart makes him speak fondly like a frantic man. As you get frantic, your language becomes less straight ahead, less utilitarian, more ornate, more Baroque, more strange, more poetic. It's what Theseus will say about poetry in that famous and overquoted um, speech that he has about the lunatic, the lover, and the poet in A Midsummer Night's Dream. So, he speaks fondly like a frantic man, yet he is come. And again, Bolingbroke does his display, which is not sun-like majesty, but his standard kneeling, stand all apart and show fair duty to his majesty. And then Shakespeare tells you, a Shakespearean stage direction, he kneels down. My gracious Lord, 
Richard says, no, fair cousin, you debase your princely need to make the base earth proud with kissing it, picking up on the base court where kings grow base that, he, that he's used before. Fair cousin, you debase your princely need to make the base earth proud with kissing it. Um, this is his version of, of Bolingbroke's, this must my comfort be, the sun that shines on you shall point on me. Now it's the base earth is proud with kissing your knee. Me rather had my heart might feel your love than my unpleased eye see your courtesy. Up, cousin, up. Your heart is up, I know, thus high at least to his crown, although your knee be low. And now Bolingbroke speaks with this strange tenderness to Richard, with this eerie intimacy. My gracious Lord, I come but for mine own. Your own is yours, and I am yours, and all. So far be mine, my most redoubted Lord, as my true service shall deserve your love. Well you deserve, they well deserve to have that know the strongest and surest way to get. York, we know, is weeping because Richard tells him not to. Uncle, give me your hands. Nay, dry your eyes. Tears show their love but want their remedies. And then to Bolingbroke, and here's that intimacy. Cousin, I am too young to be your father, though you are old enough to be my heir. Remember the queen, Bolingbroke, is her sorrow's um, dismal heir. You are old enough to be my heir. What you will have, I'll give and willing to. For do we must what force will have us do. Set on towards London, cousin. Is it so? That is, so what happens next? And here Bolingbroke says, yeah, that's right. But if you play this right in the theater, you need to get regret into Bolingbroke's voice here. That is, of course he's going to do it. Of course this is what he's going to do to become king. Obviously, this is the only way to do it. So, yay, my good lord. Yeah, we're going to London for you to abdicate. So, yes, you're right. Yay, my good lord. He's still king, but Bolingbroke is controlling things. And then Richard, then I must not say no. If that scene is right, and the very fact that York is weeping makes you see how much Shakespeare thought this scene should really be um, uh, moving. If that scene is done right, the movingness will be the fact that Richard and Bolingbroke could be friends. Richard and Bolingbroke do get each other as no one else does. The reason that plays into Bolingbroke's hands, it has to be true, it's not just manipulative. It's also manipulative on Bolingbroke's part, but it's not just manipulative. He manipulates with something real, and the real thing he manipulates with is that he is Richard's last friend. And the reason it works is because Richard needs friends. And here he is, the final friend that he will have, which is Bolingbroke. Um, there was, John Lahr wrote a review of a version of Richard II that was um, put on in New York um, about 10 years ago um, in which he gets, he describes the scene and he describes the play and he gets this exactly wrong. What he says is, 
oh, Bolingbroke is so unhappy that he has to displace Richard, and it's so awful because he loves Richard so much, um, but he knows he has to do it. And that's as bad a reading of this moment as you can get. But the reason he's making that mistake is that he is correctly feeling the intimacy between them. Um, what he's wrong about is to think that Bolingbroke wishes he didn't have to do it. Bolingbroke is delighted, but that delight nevertheless turns out to have its sad and melancholy and regretful side, and that's what's happening here. Okay, let's go, um, I just want to look at two more moments and then we'll turn to um, cheerier stuff. So let us go to um, the abdication scene. This is act four, scene one. Um, and um, in the Norton, it's page 1029 or so. Um, so Northumberland, again, is getting rich, trying to get Richard to do what Bolingbroke wants him to do, which is to resign, um, and says, you have to read these articles saying what you did wrong at line 233, Act 4, Scene 1, line 233. This is right after, by the way, the whole pilot imagery that we talked about a little bit on Friday. Um, nay, all of you, this is a 227, nay, all of you that stand and look upon whilst that my wretchedness doth bait myself, though some of you with pilot wash your hands, showing an outward piety, Yet you pilots have here delivered me to my sour cross, and water cannot wash away your sin. Um, Northumberland says, hurry up, my lord, dispatch, read o'er these articles. Richard says, no, my eyes are full of tears I cannot see. They're echoing what Bushy has said to the queen about um, seeing things through the distorting prisms of her own tears. And yet salt water blinds them not so much, but they can see a sort of traitors here. Nay, if I turn mine eyes upon myself, I find myself a traitor with the rest. So this is Richard's version of what Gaunt has said at the end of Act One: against my will to do myself this wrong by banishing my own son, Bolingbroke. Again, you can see that what the play has done is prepped us to see how people can be pressured into willingly, freely, but all of those are in quotation marks, going against their own images. I am a traitor too. Nay, if I turn mine eyes upon myself, I find myself a traitor with the rest, for I have given here my soul's consent to undeck the pompous body of a king, made glory base and sovereignty a slave, proud majesty a subject that is subjected thus. State a peasant, my lord, and Richard says, no, lord of thine, thou haught insulting man, nor no man's lord. And then now he's Richard or barely Richard. I have no name, no title. No, not that name was given me at the font, which is what I quoted you earlier, Henry Bolingbroke. Now Richard says, I don't even have that name. It's all usurped. Alack, the heavy day that I have worn so many winters out, know not now what name to call myself. Oh, that I were a mockery king of snow standing before the sun of Bolingbroke to melt myself away in water drops. Good king, great king, and yet not greatly good. And if my word be sterling yet in England, let it command a mirror hither straight that it may show me what a face I have since it is bankrupt of his majesty. So... Richard really did this. And 
Bolingbroke's answer, go some of you and fetch a looking glass, again tells you how to stage this, which is everyone is looking at Richard and saying, he's cuckoo. And this is bizarre that he wants a mirror now, but Bolingbroke says, yes, do it. Bolingbroke, the scene is one that we really like in this kind of story, a story of someone taking power by defeating someone else. Um, we really like moments like this where there's some understanding between the two principles. Um, you can think of movie after movie that does this. Um, and Shakespeare knew how good this was. Go some of you and fetch a looking glass, Northumberland, read or this paper. Um, and Bolingbroke says, no, he doesn't have to. Urge it no more my lord Northumberland. Northumberland, the commons will not then be satisfied. And Richard says, no, listen to Bolingbroke. They will be satisfied. Um, and in comes the mirror, and he looks into it, and he can't believe what he's seeing. No deeper wrinkles yet. Hath sorrow struck so many blows upon this face of mine and made no deeper wounds. O oh, flattering glass, like to my followers in prosperity, that dost beguile me. Was this face the face that every day under his household roof did keep 10,000 men? Um, probably Shakespeare is remembering here a famous line of Marlowe's, was this the face that launched 1,000 ships? Was this which was a line that um, Shakespeare really liked in Marlowe. Was this face the face that every day under his household roof did keep 10,000 men? Was this the face that, like the sun, so now he knows the truth, did make beholders wink? Is this the face which faced so many follies that was at last outfaced by Bolingbroke? A brittle glory shineth in the face, as brittle it's, as the glory is the face. Again, you don't need the stage direction because you can tell what he's done. For there it is, cracked in an hundred shivers. And then the telling line, Mark silent king, the moral of this sport, how soon my sorrow hath destroyed my face. And the silent king is not impressed by drama. The shadow of your sorrow hath destroyed the shadow of your face. Remember all the language about shadows in the previous scene with the queen and perspectives and broken glass. Say that again the shadow of my sorrow. Ha, let's see, tis very true, my grief lies all within. And these external manner of laments are merely shadows to the unseen grief that swells with silence in the tortured soul. So here Richard is describing himself all alone, except to some extent with Bolingbroke as his last real audience. There lies the substance in my soul, and I thank thee, king, for thy great bounty, that not only givest me cause to wail, but teaches me the way how to lament the cause. Hang on to that line, because Portia is going to make the same joke, except much more, uh, much more funny joke, um, in The Merchant of Venice, um, when she says to Bassanio and Antonio, you taught me how to beg, and now you teach me how a beggar is to be answered. Um, so you gave me cause to grief, and now you're telling me how to grieve. That's great. I'll beg one boon, and then be gone and trouble you no more. Shall I obtain it? 
And then again, Bolingbroke still uses this language, this very delicate language, name it, fair cousin. And Richard picks up on it, fair cousin. I am greater than a king. For when I was a king, my flatterers were then but subjects. Being now a subject, I have a king here to my flatterer. Being so great, I have no need to beg. Now he's trying to scorn Bolingbroke, but he's also feeling it. That is, there's truth in what he's just said. That here he's no one, and yet Bolingbroke is still treating him with tenderness. Yet ask, says Bolingbroke, and shall I have? You shall. Then give me leave to go. Then whither here is a hard-to-act question, but it is an important one because Bolingbroke doesn't want to say no. You can't go to France. But he doesn't want to say, yes, you can go to France. Um, so he has to ask a question that sounds like he still wants to do whatever he wants to grant Richard, whatever boon it is that Richard wants. But he's not going to grant it yet because there's some boons he can't grant. Whither? And then Richard loses it. Whither you will, so I were from your sights. And this gives Bolingbroke his out. Go, some of you, convey him to the tower. So he goes to the tower. We'll skip Act 5, scene 1, where Richard makes his prediction of Northumberland's rebellion against Bolingbroke and go back to Act 5, scene 5, the soliloquy we started with last class, um, where he plays in one person many people. And we got to line 38 or so, but whate'er I be nor I, nor any man, that but man is with nothing shall be pleased till he be eased with being nothing. And then he hears music playing. Um, Shakespeare likes to do this, and it's worth noticing when you get the Shakespearean stage direction, the music plays. When I was a kid, I don't know if you guys had this. When you were kids, when I was a kid, there was a show on called Romper Room. Is this familiar at all? No. Um, and uh, Romper Room was a kind of TV kindergarten show. And the kindergarten teacher on Romper Room, whom we all loved, um, whenever it was time for a dance or a song, she would call upon Mr. Music to play. And then you get music on the soundtrack. Um, OK, Mr. Music, she would say. And then you would get music. Um, Shakespeare does that also. Mr. Music comes on. Um, and it's a surprise. Um, but Richard hears it. Music, do I hear? Um, again, hang on to this because there'll be an amazing version of this moment in Antony and Cleopatra. Same stage direction, the music plays and the same response. People on stage hear the music and they want to know where it's from. You'll also see it in Merchant of Venice, but there Portia calls for the music. And then again, the stage direction is the music plays. Ha ha, keep time. That is, the music isn't being played well. There's some stutter in the rhythm. How sour sweet music is when time is broke and no proportion kept. That is when the rhythm is off. So is it in the music of men's lives? And here have I the daintiness of ear to check time broke in a disordered string. But for the concord of my state and time had not an ear to hear my true time broke. And then the great line and we can just stop with this line, but it is such a great line and so much 
what Shakespearean tragedy is about. I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. So to the extent that time is the theme in Shakespeare, this description of what happens with time, you can shorten days, you can waste time, but you can't do the opposite. I wasted time, and now doth time waste me. That's where all Shakespearean tragedy brings you to that moment. The way Antony will put it at the beginning of Antony and Cleopatra is there's not a moment of our lives, we've wasted so much time that now there's not a moment of our lives should stretch without some pleasure now. It's very Antony-like, very un-Richard-like to say we wasted so much time that there's very little time left. Boy, do we have to waste it hard. That's Antony and Cleopatra, as you'll see when we get to it. But variations on the idea that you waste time for a while, and then time wastes you, variations on the, that idea are in all of Shakespeare's tragedies. And it, that may be <coughs> Richard's single best line. And he has almost no time left when he says it. Okay, so um, time being of the essence, here's our segue into Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and there being just four days between the beginning of that play and the marriages that will end it, and only um, half an hour left in our class today. We can't afford to waste any more time. I'm not talking about Midsummer Night's Dream. So let us turn to that. I know, that was like the lamest segue ever. Um, but what can you do? I should just ask if there are any questions about Richard II before we do that. Okay, good. Um, okay, so here we have done um, a history which is really a tragedy. And now we will do our first comedy, which is um, not entirely but mainly a comedy. Um, and it ends basically very happily, but not entirely happily. Is your hand up? No. Um, and uh, so it's definitely a change of pace, but not entirely a change of pace. Um, one of the ways that it's not a change of pace is seen in the very first scene, which is generational conflict. Um, the older generation in Midsummer Night's Dream is the generation of Theseus and Hippolyta. Um, Theseus, who is the Duke of Athens, and Hippolyta, who's the Queen of the Amazons, but who's been defeated by Theseus and is now to marry him. Um, that's a little troubling, perhaps, if, she, if you're convinced that she's not happy about this marriage, and it's the first thing we have to decide, is how she feels about the marriage. Um, representatives of the older generation also include in this first scene Aegeus, who is Helena's father, and who is very clear whom he wants to marry Helena off to. The younger generation is, of course, Hermia and Lysander and Helena, and then there's Demetrius. And Demetrius is the member of the younger generation who is nevertheless looking to 
the authority of the older generation. So Lysander's telling line to Demetrius is, you have her father's love, Demetrius. Do you marry him? That is, so there you are thinking that the real way to get a marriage going is to get the approval, not of the woman who doesn't like you, but of her father. Um, so the older generation believes in its authority, and that authority is, oh, I don't know what to call it, patriarchal. Um, and the idea is that what fathers decide um, should be what counts, not what daughters decide. So notice then the parallel between the situation of Demetrius and Helena on the one hand, Demetrius insists that he has a right to marry Helena, um, and Helena doesn't want to marry him, with the, with the situation of Theseus and Hippolyta. Um, Theseus insists, sorry? You mean Hermia, right? Yeah. Demetrius wants to marry Hermia. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Demetrius wants to marry Hermia, and uh, yeah, no, no, I got it all wrong. Um, Oh, I hate it when you guys do it and then look at me. Yes, I do. Thank you. I was actually testing to see if you were listening. Yeah, that's right. I was testing. You pass. That's good. Sorry? Um, yeah, it counts. Um, one, of, one of the many passes that you will need to pass the course. Good. Um, yes, I apologize. Um, Aegeus, yeah, it's reverse it all. Um, Aegeus has decided that his daughter will marry Demetrius, and that's too bad. Um, and Demetrius thinks that Aegeus's decision is what counts. Um, so because Hermia's father, Aegeus, wants Hermia to marry Demetrius, that's the way it's going to be. Um, so that situation, that is Demetrius and Hermia, is uh, the situation between um, Theseus and Hippolyta. It's might makes right, um, patriarchy decides. And of course, that's not what we're rooting for. We're rooting for the course of true love. <coughs> and the course of true love is easily Hermia and Lysander. Of course, we want them married. But it's a little bit harder to say what else we want because Theseus and Hippolyta, that seems a forced wedding. And then even if we somehow get a marriage between Demetrius and Helena, which is what Helena wants, um, do we really want Helena getting Demetrius when Demetrius doesn't love her? Um, what kind of successful marriage will that be? So Shakespeare begins by setting up three different final pairs um, and giving us at least two, but probably three different attitudes towards those three different final pairs. The three different attitudes being the obvious one, Hermia and Lysander, yay, go. Um, the one we really don't want at the beginning, if we're at all thinking about it, and I should tell you that Shakespeare doesn't want us to want. Don't read A Midsummer Night's Dream and say, see what a, what a sexist, chauvinist creep Shakespeare is. He thinks it's fine for Theseus to be doing this to Hippolyta. He doesn't think it's fine. Um, and that's easily demonstrated, and um, in a minute or two, I hope to demonstrate it. 
Um, so we don't think that's fine. And then a third situation, which is a couple in which one person wants the marriage, the other person doesn't, but it's different from Theseus and Hippolyta because in Theseus and Hippolyta, the person who wants the marriage can force it. Whereas in Helena and, um, and Demetrius, the person who wants the marriage, Helena can't force it. So in one case, you can have a marriage forced against the will of one of the parties. In the other case, the party we like better wants the marriage but can't get the marriage against the will of the other party. And then our loyalties are divided there a little bit also because on the one hand, we want Helena to be reasonably, I mean, we have reasonably good feelings towards Helena. She does some bad things, but still she's more sinned against than sinning. Um, so she, we want her to get what she wants on the one hand, but on the other hand, we don't really want to see a marriage that um, isn't a happy one where both sides don't want the marriage to occur. So we have lots of splits in our desires in this play, and then in comes yet another couple. That is the already married couple of Oberon and Titania who are not getting along very well. Um, they too belong to the older generation. So if you just look at the kind of balance of possibilities um, in A Midsummer Night's Dream, four couples, two in an older generation, two in a younger generation, um, one couple that is very happy about the idea of marrying, one couple that's already married but not so happy about it, two couples in which one side wants to marry and the other doesn't want to marry. In one of those couples, the side that wants to marry has the power. In the other, the side that doesn't want to marry has the power. And then athwart all of that, um, another possible couple, which is the um, Demetrius-Hermia couple, which, um, par which parallels the Theseus-Hippolyta couple. And then in the course of the play, as the love juice gets passed around, um, other couples come into being um, and then disappear. Yeah. Um, you, you associated um, Oberon Titania with the older generation. Aren't they kind of aloof from it all? They're they're. Well, they're aloof. They're like I'm just talking. Angels, timeless. I, I, I don't no, see that, really well, associated with the, the viewpoints of the older generation. They're associated with the viewpoints of the older generation because they are no longer. So what? To, so the question is. Are Oberon and Titania, how do, they, how do they fit in with the older generation? Aren't they timeless? Um, I don't think they're timeless by way of being characters. And the reason they're, time, they're not timeless by way of being characters is that they no longer believe in love. They don't have adolescent, I mean, they may believe in love, but they don't have an adolescent view of love. They're experienced. They know each other, and they know what love is like and what life is like, and they also, um, know what it's like to fall out of love, or at least they know what it's like um, when you possibly love someone, but you're no longer in love with them. It's also going to be the case that structurally, so now I'm going to tell you about um, an important feature of how Elizabethan and Jacobean plays were performed. Um, Shakespeare is often still performed this way, but he was always performed this way um, in plays with, large, with a large number of characters. Um, in Shakespeare's day, which is through something called doubling. 
And what doubling is, um, maybe, the, maybe the most obvious version in, in our um, cultural experience is The Wizard of Oz. Um, I mentioned John Lahr, who reviewed Richard II and the New Yorker. His father was Bert Lahr, who played the Cowardly Lion um, in The Wizard of Oz. Um, but in The Wizard of Oz, when Dorothy's in Kansas and everything's black and white, there are all those, all those people in Kansas, and then she goes to Oz, and they reappear as the Wicked Witch of the West and as the Cowardly Lion and the Tin Man and the Straw Man. And then when she wakes up again in Kansas, you remember she says, you were there, and you were there, and you were there. Um, and the point is they are doubled. They're not the same characters. And yet the fact that they're played by the same actors matters within the movie. It's not just um, something done um, in making the movie. It actually matters within the movie. So in Shakespeare's day, you almost always had more characters than actors. And um, the way you did that, obviously, was you had actors play more than one role. And it's pretty easy, looking at any Elizabethan or Jacobean play, to see how artfully they were written to make doubling possible. Um, that is to say, plays are written in which characters never appear on stage together. And when you see that that seems to have been fairly carefully done by the playwright, you can tell that the characters who never appear on stage together are played by the same actor. Um, that can just be an interesting pedantic historical fact, but in some playwrights' hands, um, not beginning with Shakespeare, but way before Shakespeare, the fact that, the, that different characters were played by the same actor would have the Wizard of Oz effect, which is you would see connections between characters if you recognized that the actor playing them was the same. That makes possible really interesting connections between characters. One example of this in the old morality plays is the way a play like Everyman works is you have a character named Everyman who kind of stands for, well, all of us. Um, and Everyman is, um, his fate hangs in the balance. Should he sin? Should he be good? And um, the um, seven deadly sins come in, and they say it sure would be fun to be lecherous and slothful and gluttonous and angry and everything else. Why don't you do that? And he says, yeah, that sounds good. Um, and he's about to do something really stupid. Um, and he, he talks about it for a while, and he thinks, OK, I'll do this really stupid thing, um, although he doesn't call it stupid. But then the seven virtues come in, and they say, oh, no, every man, you don't want to do that. And he says, why, you're right. And then, um, spoiler. He goes to heaven. Um, <laughs> the actors playing the seven deadly sins return as the seven virtues. And the point being made there is not that every sin is really a virtue or that every virtue is really a sin, although that would be an interesting point. Um, but the point is rather that in the same way all of us are torn between our sinful selves and our virtuous selves, um, the very actors who play the seven deadly sins can also come back as the virtues. They represent that possible switch to goodness that every man himself, in order to be saved, will have to undertake. So the idea of doubling characters with the same actor makes possible really interesting effects. Midsummer Night's Dream is 
written for doubling, and the doubling, there are a lot of doublings in, in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, the Titania's fairy servants are doubled with the mechanicals who are putting on um, the tedious brief tragedy. So um, Cobweb and Peas Blossom and Mustard Seed and so on are also Peter Quince and Snug and so on, same actors playing those characters. Much more important, well, somewhat more important, is Puck and Philostrate, the master of the revels. So Puck is the fairy, and Philostrate is the master of the revels. Puck is to Oberon what Philostrate is to Theseus, and that tells us the most important doubling, which is that Oberon and Titania are played by the same actors as Theseus and Hippolyta. So one way to see the trajectory and arc of this play is something that if you do it perfectly realistically, which it's hard to imagine, but people do stupid things, if you do this play perfectly realistically, you won't see what Shakespeare wants you to see, which is the story of the people playing Theseus and Hippolyta is continued in the dream world by Oberon and Titania so that when we return to Theseus and Hippolyta, they haven't been out of our minds and out of our sights for an hour. They're still there. We've been seeing their story continuously, although in other characters. The characters morph into the actors, or the actors morph into the characters, or the reality morphs into the dream and then morphs back into reality, and we see their story in a single trajectory as well as the story of the young couples. So another reason that we put Theseus and Hippolyta and Oberon and Titania in the same category as far as generation goes is that they um, belong to really the same story arc. They are, they are a mosaic. Um, or they're an arc that's depicted through a mosaic of characters. Um, and that mosaic of characters gives us Theseus and Hippolyta turning into Oberon and Titania, turning back to Theseus and Hippolyta, and at the very end of the play, turning back into Oberon and Titania. And we're watching two actors all the way through. We're watching two actors doing that. It's also important that Theseus and Hippolyta's struggle is over a boy, that is, um, over a young man um, who they want custody of. Sorry? Oh, excuse me, Oberon and Titania. <laughs> See? Good. But I was making my point. Not even intending to make it, I was making it. Um, it just shows how, how deeply and how well we assimilate the identity of Theseus and Hippolyta and Oberon and Titania. Um, I shall think the better of myself for making these mistakes. <laughs> so, yeah, so again, it's a child custody battle, which, which puts them in, although they're foster parents, it puts them in a parental situation, not, they're not, they're not the children's generation, they're the parents' generation, and Hippolyta, um, <laughs> Titania herself says that when she says everything that's wrong with the world all the things that are going wrong with the weather, the global warming and everything else, is our fault. It's the progeny of our dissension. We are their parents and originals. So she herself says we're the parents of 
what's going on in the world, what's going on between us, because we are the figures of power, affects everything. But that's true of Theseus and Hippolyta as well. Um, so let's look at the very start of the play and notice um, the first two speeches, um, which tell us uh, the time frame of the play and um, one of the um, issues or tensions that the play is about. Um, Enter Theseus, Hippolyta, we know Philostrate comes in because he'll speak, and others. And Theseus says, now, fair Hippolyta, our nuptial hour draws on apace. It's almost time to marry. Four happy days bring in another moon. But, oh, methinks how slow this old moon wanes. So four days will be the new moon, so he claims. Um, but the old moon is waning. He wants to marry at the start of the month. Um, the question of the moon is going to appear throughout this play um, because the moon, as we're about to find out, is, is um, the goddess of the moon is Diana, who is the goddess of chastity and of the hunt, as well as of the moon. Um, so the moon stands for chastity, and that is going to matter. But Omi thinks how slow this old moon wanes. She lingers my desires like to a stepdame or a dowager long withering out a young man's revenue. So I just notice as the tiniest of subliminal effects, um, and occasionally we'll notice them, and these are subliminal. They're not, you're not supposed to notice this, and most of them we won't notice. But the idea of the moon as being like a stepdame is the very beginning of Theseus being on the side of Oberon. He's against stepmothers. Um, and of course, um, Titania is going to be the changeling boy's stepmother. So just the slightest hint of that story is the, just a seed of that story is planted here. Then Hippolyta has her only speech in the first three acts of this play is this speech. Four days will quickly steep themselves in night. So he's saying, oh, God, it's four days. And she's saying, oh, God, it's four days. Um, and for him, four days is forever. And for her, four days is like, I can't believe how soon this disaster is coming upon me. Four days will quickly steep themselves in night. Four nights will quickly dream away the time, and then the moon, like to a silver bow, new bent in heaven, shall behold the night of our solemnities. Um, so in four days, the new moon will come. We'll see the, the um, tiniest crescent of the new moon, and it will behold the day of our solemnities. Um, but notice that what she's saying is the moon will be a huntress, hence the bow, which is why Diana, the moon, is regarded as also the hunter, Remember that I, too, am a warrior. So be careful, um, is what she's saying. And then Theseus, that's her last speech here. And Theseus says, OK, go um, follow straight, stir up the Athenian youth to merriments. A work, the pert and nimble spirit of mirth, turn melancholy forth to funerals. The pale companion is not for our pomp. And then we find out what's happened. Hippolyta, I wooed thee with my sword and won thy love doing the injuries but I will wed thee in another key with pomp, with triumph, and with reveling. So that's the claim he makes. That's, in a way, the first issue in the play. 
Will he wed her in another key? Or will it be by force? Will he win her love? Will the injuries that he does her or has done her come to an end? And as is very typical in Shakespeare, as soon as someone makes a claim, that claim gets tested. So think of this scene from Hippolytus' point of view. And the reason to think of it from Hippolytus' point of view is given by an implied stage direction, um, which is at the end of the end of the scene, that is the end um, just before Lysander and Hermia um, stay on stage. So if you go a page further to line um, 122, he's made his decision, and his decision is no, <coughs> Hermia and Lysander don't get to marry each other, and then it's time to leave, and he says, come my Hippolyta. Now remember, she's been there the whole time, and now she's been watching this unfold, hasn't said a word, but has watched this whole scene unfold, and then he says, come my Hippolyta, and then the really telling question, very easy to miss, but if you're performing it, it matters. What cheer, my love? Which would mean, what's wrong, my dear? So, what's wrong? Well, what's wrong is the scene that's just passed. She's watching the way he's handled the situation between Hermia and Helena, among Hermia and Helena and Lysander and Demetrius, and she doesn't like it. And that's what that line tells us, what the line tells the actor who's playing Hippolyta. Uh, Hippolyta. Oh. What the line is telling the actor playing Hippolyta is be pissed. And that's what Theseus is now dealing with. However, Theseus handles the scene a little bit better, maybe, than we're expecting him to, and that's another thing to notice. So Aegeus comes in, he's really angry at Hermia because Hermia won't marry Demetrius, um, and Theseus um, says the wrong thing at line 47. What say you, Hermia? Be advised, fair maid, to you your father should be as a god, one that composed your beauties, yea, and one to whom you are but as a form in wax, by him imprinted <coughs> and within his power to leave the figure or disfigure it. Demetrius is a worthy gentleman, so um, so is Lysander. And Theseus says, yeah, but Demetrius has your father's voice, and Lysander doesn't. Um, and Hermia says, I want to know what can happen to me. Now we're at line 64. Um, I beseech your grace that I may know the worst that may befall me in this case if I refuse to wed Demetrius. Um, now, we already know the worst that can befall her, right? Because Aegeus has said it in lines 43. As she is mine, and forward, as she is mine, I may dispose of her, which shall be either to this gentleman or to her death according to our law immediately provided in that case. So Aegeus stands for law much as Shylock will in The Merchant of Venice. And he says, according to what um, Lysander will call the sharp Athenian law, according to the law, she marries whom I say, or she dies, I get to decide. If she won't marry the person I want her to marry, she dies. So Hermia now asks that question, and Theseus says, your father is right. 
the worst that may befall you is either to die the death or to abjure forever the society of men. Now notice that that's a new option. And um, Theseus, if you're playing him right, I'm not saying that you should be able to get this by reading this once, but if you're playing him right, given what happens at the end of the play, the right way to play Theseus is to see how good he is at seeming to agree with someone whom he's actually trying to nudge away from the position that he's seeming to agree with. So what he's saying is your father is right. If you don't marry whom he says, you either have to die or enter a convent. And that wasn't part of the choice. But Aegeus is going to be saying, see, I'm right. But what Theseus has done cleverly is come up with another option. Therefore, for fair Hermia, question your desires, know of your youth, examine well your blood, whether if you yield not to your father's choice, you can endure the livery of a nun. For I, to be in shady cloister mew, to live a barren sister all your life, chanting faint hymns to the cold, fruitless moon. Thrice blessed they that master so their blood to undergo such maiden pilgrimage. But earthly or happy is the rose distilled than that which withering on the virgin thorn grows lives and dies in single blessedness. So it's a beautiful speech and partly beautiful for Hippolyta's benefit. The queen of the Amazons, what he's in effect offering Hermia is a version of what Hippolyta had. And again, if you're playing it right, no one in the audience, and if you're playing Hippolyta, you shouldn't be trying to um, upstage Theseus at this point. Um, if you're playing Hippolyta, you should be as um, inconspicuous as possible um, so that the audience pays attention to Theseus. And what the audience will hear here is something like Theseus um, explaining Hippolyta to us. That's not what he means to be doing, but he's ex in explaining her to us He's also getting us to like him a little bit better. What he is doing here shows more sensitivity and understanding than we expected from him. Not that much more. This isn't, it's not, oh, good, Theseus, yes, by all means now it's okay for you to force Apollo to marry you. Not at all. But it's the beginning of the, of the resurrection of Theseus's character. So one more general word, which is the... the what, sh the, what Shakespeare assigns himself in almost every play that he writes is the getting us to like a character whom we started out not liking. That is a kind of perpetual um, direction in Shakespeare's plays, a perpetual vector. It may not be the central character. It may not be something um, that we focus on throughout. In King Lear, it will be the central character. In King Lear, we hate King Lear at the end of Act One, Scene One. But a thing that Shakespeare loves to do and that he thinks gives a whole lot of substance and through line in a play is giving us a character whom we start off not liking and getting us to be for that character by the end of the play. In this case, that character is Theseus. The first speech, we don't like him. 
and the rest of the play, among the things that will happen, is we will get to like him. Okay, finish the play for Friday. There will be a quiz then, and we will finish. We too will finish the play on Friday.